morning, everyone. It's a delight to bring God's word uh, to you and anyone else who might be listening on Zoom. Uh, my opening will be a question somebody asked me uh, while we were between our meetings today. How, how are your kids doing at school? Well, a week ago, uh, my uh, fourth grader son, uh, Ben, came home with uh, an assignment in, uh, I guess, his science class, asking him to explain uh, convergent evolution versus uh, divergent evolution. Fourth grader, he's nine years old. <laughs> so I mean, I don't know if you want to, we could we could talk about that. But basically, it has to do with the fact that uh, some animals have shared characteristics, and divergent evolution says, of course, they had a common ancestor and they became different species. And but that's they have similar characteristics from you know a previous stage of evolution. Convergent evolution is they have no shared ancestors at all, but you know, they still somehow come up together and have the same characteristics. So evolution is wonderful. You can explain anything with evolution. But uh, uh, we know there's a problem because it denies uh, the fact that we have a creator, the fact that God made us. It's really, it's, over the years, there have been many attempts to um, take away uh, our responsibility to God by uh, claiming that uh, we came from somewhere else other than God. And evolution is really just the latest in this series of theories that people came up with over the years to explain it. Uh, the root of it is found in, uh, in Romans. So if you want to, you could turn to Romans chapter 1. We, we are studying the book of Matthew. Uh, but I thought this could be um, an introduction to uh, our, our message for today. So in Romans chapter 1 and verse 18, it says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and keeping things. So there really you have evolution. It's a turning away from man to God. And God says that uh, his existence, his power, uh, is evident by the creation around us. And uh, it's interesting, uh, my, son, my, you know, Benaya, my fourth grader son, he comes home with, uh, uh, actually, was this Ben or was this Joey? 
I'm sorry, I get confused. I'm, I'm struggling keeping up with the studies. Um, but they came home with, uh, with an assignment of reading about uh, Indian uh, folklore uh, and then kind of explaining what it was. And he talks about Indians' idea of creation. And what do you know? Throughout the world, you go around and you find uh, a general sense of, among culture that they were created by a divine being. Yes, Nessia? That was Ben, okay, yeah. And uh, it's interesting, you don't go around the world and looking at uh, you know, different cultures and finding different versions of evolution. You don't, right? It seems like there is a general knowledge out there that we were created by a divine being. It's the only real explanation of how we came uh, to be. And God says it in his word, that his existence is evident through his creation and yet mankind is suppressing the truth of God in unrighteousness. We don't want, we don't want there to be a God that we're obligated to obey and to please. We want to be independent. We want to do whatever we want to do, uh, live by our own morality. And so evolution fits nicely into that desire that we have, because if we can explain away God and the fact that we were created by God, if we can suppress that truth, it's easier for me to to uh, throw off the yoke and do whatever it is that I want to do uh, with my life. <clears throat> Nessia and Eliana, they're the next ones I'll, I'll pick on since uh, I would ask me how school's going. Uh, they went to a uh, Christian um, club event on their high school, and the purpose was, I believe, to you know have some fellowship and then sing some praise songs. And uh, I think they go by the flagpole. They, they meet by the flagpole to have this event of praise. And what do you think waits them on the flagpole? <laughs> I don't know how many of you are familiar with that flag. Uh, it stands for the LGBTQ. There may be some, a few more letters after that, which basically expresses you know, man's belief in alternate sexuality, right? God made male and female uh, with the purpose of you know, one man and one woman joining together in matrimony, right? Loving each other and bringing children into the world, right? That was God's idea, God's design. And yeah, today we're throwing off the yoke. And, uh, and if we want to go by a flag in high school, we have to look at that flag, right? That's what's, uh, you know, being pushed by society. And again, it, it fits so well into Romans chapter 1, just continuing on. It says, therefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness in the lusts of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to vile passions. For even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise, also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust for one another, men with men, committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error which was due. So it comes along, right? If you're going to throw off God, you throw off God's design, and you start doing whatever feels good, uh, which, which is not uh, really what God had in mind uh, when he created us. Um, the next thing that caught my attention, this is not school-related uh, precisely, 
but uh, this was in the news quite a bit uh, the last week, if you want to show the next slide. Um, Texas has passed a law, so I, I assume that most of you are familiar with the abortion debate, so there was a Roe v. Wade decision some, you know, 40, 50 years ago that basically legalized abortion, and um, it's, it's kind of a quandary, right? So if you look at the arguments that were put in that, that trial, basically the lawyer that was uh, supporting abortion was you know, using some, some phrase in, I think, the 14th Amendment or 15th Amendment that, that talk about citizens as being those naturally born in the United States. If you were born in the United States, you're a citizen of the United States, and therefore you have a right of protection by the United States. Well, these fetuses, unborn babies, haven't been born. They have no protection under the laws of the United States. And therefore, their parents, their mothers at will, can you know, abort the fetus, kill the child, right? Uh, murder, you're taking the life of a human being, and, and, and it's legal. Now, Almost everybody reacted against this. They knew there was instinctively there's something wrong because, I mean, the child is a perfect child before he leaves the mother's womb. Well, now the child is going outside the mother's womb. You know, it's a baby. It's not okay to kill the baby, is it? In fact, in the past, it was, right? That was their version of abortion in the New Testament days. They would take the child and throw it in the trash. Unbelievable, right? But this is the outcome when you're throwing away God's design of marriage, one man, one woman, committed to each other, having children, you know, and, and you open the door for all kinds of forms of sexuality. Well, God's design that the result of a sexual activity will be a child. What are you going to do with all these children you didn't want? Right? And that's why abortion, you know, comes into play. But like I said, people could tell there's something wrong with that. And so they started pushing the line and saying, okay, well, the child, you know, has to be less than, you know, 30 weeks or, you know, it can't be in the third trimester or whatever it is, you know, the rules they come. Well, in, in Texas, they said, okay, well, let's lower it all the way down to the point where we cannot hear a heartbeat. Once you can hear a heartbeat, we're going to say the child, it's a living human being. You cannot have an abortion. Right? It's Texas, right? It's, you know, state law. They're allowed to have state laws. Well, you know, people throughout the United States are upset that Texas is trying to protect the lives of Texan children, right, that are below whatever it is, third trimester, and pushing it all the way down to measuring a heartbeat. Again, it just, to me, it captures how far the morality of our society has decayed, right? Well, people feel they should go up in arms because somebody is going to limit the age of abortion down to, you know, whatever it is, six, eight weeks when you can finally sense, for the first time, sense a heartbeat. And, uh, you know, we could judge people for their sins, but I will have to realize whenever I'm pointing at you, I have three fingers pointing at myself, right? And I have to say, I am the sinner 
that uh, these verses uh, talk about. I may not have been active in all these activities, um, but, but in my heart, I am no better. And I've certainly practiced many things that God in his word commands us not to practice. Uh, Romans chapter 2 kind of uh, finishes this passage, really pointing the finger back at ourselves. Uh, verse 3 says, And do you think this, O man, who you who judge those practicing such things and doing the same, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? But in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. So what these verses tell us is, you know, we, we have a tendency of thinking that we will escape God's judgment. It's not going to hit me. And yet, uh, Paul points to the fact that, you know, all the good things you're experiencing now, those are God's patience. God is patient. He wants you to repent. He's hoping that his goodness, his kindness toward you will bring you back to him, um, to a right relationship with him. In the meantime, you are storing up on yourself wrath. God is angry against the things that you're doing, and the payment is going higher and higher, and it will eventually come out in this place, this time called the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. And that, brother and sister, is what we're going to look at today, the day when God will reveal his righteous judgment against sin. We're talking about the second coming of Christ. If you want to turn back to the book of Matthew that we've been studying, we could uh, potentially go back uh, to the beginning of the chapter just to remind ourselves of the context. So Matthew 24 and verse 1, and then we'll jump to the passage we have today. So Matthew 24 verse 1, it says, then Jesus went out and departed from the temple. If you remember, this is really the end of Jesus' earthly ministry. He reached out to the nation of Israel. He's offered himself to them as their Messiah, and they've basically rejected him. So he's going out, departing from the temple, and his disciples came up to show him the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said to them, do you not see all these things? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. Now, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, his, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? So, it seems like finally the disciples are getting that Jesus is not going to be the Messiah they expected him to be. They expected him to take the throne uh, of Jerusalem, dispose of all these religious leaders that were against him, uh, deliver Israel from the oppression of the Roman Empire, and set it at its right, right place, you know, ruling the world, and his disciples will be his right-hand men. They'll be ruling the world together with him. That's what Jesus' disciples had in mind. And for the first time, it seems like they're getting an inkling it's not going to happen. 
And, and, and they're coming and asking, okay, well, tell us when. When will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And that is what Jesus is answering in our passage today. So skipping on to verse 29, if you remember in between, Jesus spoke about the tribulation, the fact that there will be this seven-year period of tribulation where God's judgment is going to be poured on the earth. And so he says in verse 29, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. So when will Jesus come again? Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the end of the seventh day, the seven-year period. Why? Why did Jesus wait for that time? Um, in Second uh, Peter chapter 3, we're told this, uh, knowing this, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts, and saying, where is the promise of his coming? So these are people who are asking a similar question. <laughs> you know, he's been talking about coming back for a long time. Okay, where, where is it? When will he actually come? Right, the scoffers. For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. Right, so people doubt that Jesus will come again. It's been a long time since he said he would, and he hasn't. For this they willfully forget that the word of God, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of water and in the water, by which the world that then existed perished, being flooded with water. So they're forgetting about the flood, God's previous judgment of the world. Interesting, when you look at ancient civilizations and their mythology, besides for being created by a divine being, almost every culture also remembers the flood. Right? which people today willfully forget. But the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. God still will judge the world. This time it will be by fire. But, beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So first of all, God has a different way of counting time than we do, right? To him, a thousand years can be as one day, right? He is God. He, he is a... Uh, he exists from eternity past to eternity future. So a thousand years are like a drop in a bucket for him. So he's patient, right? And, but he's patient with the purpose of bringing us to repentance, right? And throughout the ages, 
God has been drawing people to himself, finding different ways of reaching people's heart and drawing them. And the same is true during this, this period of tribulation, right? Um, I think uh, these are items that, uh, that Don already covered, but we could, we could cover them quickly. So during these seven years, this last period of time, again, God's purpose is to get people to, re- to turn to him, right, to repent of their sins. He wants to save them, right? Um, Don mentioned that God will allow sin to fully manifest itself. So you think things are bad now, but the Bible tells us that the Holy Spirit is in this world and restraining people from being as bad as they could be. Yes, people are bad, and people do bad things, but they're not doing things as bad as they would during this last seven years. That's when God will remove the Holy Spirit. All restraint will be removed. People can be just as wicked and evil as they want to be. Nothing will stop them. And, and so we will get to see, people who will be here at the time will get to see just how bad people are and hopefully how bad they are themselves, right? God will allow sin to be manifested like sin in human flesh has never been manifested before, number one. Number two, as I mentioned, he'll be sending judgments of the earth. Today, people are like, well, you know, God doesn't exist, right? Well, God will manifest himself so clearly during those seven years, these plagues are gonna come upon the earth that people will realize God is sending judgment on this world. I think there'll be very few atheists left at the end of this seven-year period. It'll just be so evident that God is in control and God has power and God is against the sin of mankind, right? It will be so clear during those seven years. Number three, he's going to be sending out 144,000 missionaries throughout the world, right? And these missionaries will be divinely protected. Right? Nobody will be able to hurt them. They'll have angelic assistance. Right? The world has never seen an evangelistic campaign of the type that will be going on during those last seven years. And uh, fourth, uh, we see the results of it in uh, Revelation chapter 7. <clears throat> this is one of the visions John has in Revelation after the first uh, seven plagues or the seven seals are opened. Um, Revelation 7, chapter 7, verse 9. After these things, I looked and behold, a great multitude, which no one could number, of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels stood around the throne and the elders and the four living creatures and fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom, thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. It was a worship meeting in heaven. Right? By this great multitude and by all these angels. And um, not unlike the meeting we had here this morning. Then one of the elders 
answered, saying to me, who are these arrayed in white robes, and where did they come from? Right? So he's asking John. Right? John's having this vision. He sees this amazing worship meeting in heaven with uncountable people. And the, one of the elders says, okay, John, who are these people? And, and John is smart, right? Because he says, sir, you know. <laughs> I don't know the answer, but you, would you tell me what the answer is? So he said to me, these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation and washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. So these are, these are, this is the fruit of these seven years. God did not send judgment in vain upon the earth for seven years. His desire is to bring people to himself, and he did. A multitude that cannot be numbered. Uh, I've heard people estimate a billion people, right, will come out of those seven years. And, and how will these people be saved? The same way that we are saved. They've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. There's only one thing that removes sin, and that is the blood of the Lord Jesus, shed for you and shed for me. Still available for those people during the tribulation time. But, finally, we should observe not everybody repents, right? I, I uh, had uh, an accident this morning. I got up, uh, went to uh, the kitchen to, uh, to get a cup of coffee, and the floor was all wet because my dishwasher failed last night. It's okay. Something always happens when I'm preaching, so I just go along with it. But I had to get these towels, right, and wipe the floor, and, you know, you, you fill it up, and you take it over the sink, and you squeeze it, right? And at first, a lot of water comes out, and you have to squeeze harder and harder to get the last drop. And that's what God is doing during this tribulation period. He just keeps squeezing and squeezing and squeezing just to get that last person to get saved, who would get saved. But there will be those uh, who would not get saved and will resist to the end. And we see that, too. Uh, again, Don... Uh, covered it, but uh, just some verses. Revelation chapter 9 says, but the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, that they should not worship demons and idols of gold, silver, brass, stone, and wood, which can neither see nor hear nor walk, and they did not repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immoralities, or their theft. So there will remain people in the world who will refuse to repent of their sins. Right? What, what should God do right, at the end of this period of time? Well, <clears throat> the answer is in this passage. Eventually, Jesus will come. Right? He waited as long as he could until the last sinner who would repent would repent, and now the time has come. And that's why it says, immediately after the period of tribulation, Right, uh, And then he says, uh, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven and the powers of heavens will be shaken. So that's a curious note. It says that the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from heaven. And uh, it makes me think of uh, something we used to do uh, in my family. And it would be somebody's birthday we would usually try to keep it a surprise. And then we would bring the birthday cake with the candles on it. What would we do before we brought the cake in with the candles? We would turn off the light, 
right? Because then you could see it more, you appreciate more uh, the specialness of it. And that's the same. You could, you could look online for like images. I, I picked one that I thought was maybe better than, than some of the others I saw. But uh, that's one vision people have of the coming of Christ. And you see everything in the background is dark. And when he comes, uh, he, is, he shines with light. And that's, and that's true to the scriptures. If you remember when he was transfigured before his disciples, right? He said that there are some standing here who will not see death before they will see <coughs> the, the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And then next, the next passage, he's on the mountain and he unveils himself in front of them. And again, he glows, right? His face shines like the sun. His clothes are as white as the light. It's true that Jesus in his glory shines. He veiled his glory when he came to earth as a man. And now he's going to come in his glorified form. And he's going to be shining with bright light. And so God is turning off the lights, right? As Jesus is going is going to be coming. Um, wonderful. Okay, so that's the time. Remember, they, they asked for when, and then they also asked for, for the sign, right? So I have all these notes here. I'm trying to make sure I'm keeping it in order. So that was the sign. I mean, really, the image. And I think the important thing to notice, uh, the word sign really speaks of, of some sort of a miracle, right? In the scriptures, we would use signs and miracles. It's an indicator, right? God doesn't want anybody to miss the fact that this is his son whom he has sent to reign on the, over the world, right? That's, that's what's God's purpose. Jesus has come now to reign over the world. This is, this is God taking possession of what is his. It's his world. He created it. We are his people. He made us for himself, right? And now Jesus is coming to take possession of all these things. And so this is, you know, what I call an inescapable sign. God doesn't want anyone to miss it, and no one will miss it. In fact, it said in uh, Revelation 1-7, Behold, he is coming with clouds, and every eye will see him, even they who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so, amen. And uh, the passage that describes that is in Revelation 19, um, again, I had, you know, one more image. Let, I can read the passage, and then you can show, I guess, the image that I picked. Revelation 19, Now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself, he was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of Almighty God, and he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So I picked the picture. Uh, again, you know, this is just an artist rendition. Uh, nobody seems to really be able to capture everything in that event. Uh, he comes not just with the saints, 
uh, riding on horses behind him. It also comes with angels, the Bible tells us. But I couldn't find a picture that had both the angels and, and the, the horse, uh, him riding on a horse. It's also missing his eyes, uh, the eyes of fire, and the sword should be coming out of his mouth if you want to be true to the, to the scriptures. Like I said, nobody can quite capture the glory of the coming of the Lord Jesus, but it is going to be an unmistakable, inescapable sign for everyone on the earth. There isn't going to be anyone who's not going to see the Lord Jesus coming back in his glory. Now we're told, I think already a couple of times, that uh, the world will mourn. People, the world is not going to be happy that Jesus is coming back. Right? Uh, and, and we can understand why, because the world is mostly going to be composed of those people who continue to resist. As God was squeezing that towel and trying to get the last person to be saved, putting, putting down all these judgments, the majority of the world still resisted God. And so, really, Jesus is coming uh, in judgment. And therefore, we understand that the world uh, will be in mourning. One of the earliest... Uh, prophecies in the Bible is quoted for us in Jude 1. It says, Now Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men also. So this goes all the way back before the flood, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment on all, to convict all who are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have committed in an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. God is going to judge sin. There's just no way around it. Um, God is angry, and he's just to be angry. People have been denying. He, he's made his existence evident through creation, uh, and yet people deny him, and they'll come up with alternate theories to explain God away. Uh, he makes his will known, whether in our conscience or through his uh, word, the Bible, and, and people break his laws. Uh, and uh, he, he made his salvation available to all. He sent his son to the cross to die for your sins and for mine. And people have rejected his offer of salvation. So God is righteous when he comes uh, to judge the world. In Revelation 19, it continues, And I saw the beast... The kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. Then the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone, and the rest were killed with the sword which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with the flesh. So this is the end, right? The very end of the book of Revelation, the end of the seven-year uh, period of God's judgment. The Lord Jesus is coming back to the earth. It's his world, and, and people will resist him to the end. In fact, they will go to war against him. These will be armies surrounding Jerusalem, fighting against uh, the remnants of God's people, and Jesus will come and, and he will destroy them. Right? It's God's, God's judgment uh, uh, coming to the end. Now you notice that two of them get thrown into the lake of fire. That is 
the beast and uh, the false the false prophet, right? Those were two uh, significant individuals during the seven-year uh, period of tribulation. They were the ones who were really leading man, mankind rebellion against God. So their, their story is over, right? Now the rest will actually, you know, just die a physical death, uh, but God is not done with them uh, to, to, to really finish the story you have to go on to Revelation 20. Uh, this is the great white throne judgment. I know this, this is bad news, right? But this is the word of God. And this is the end of sin. Right? God has to deal with sin to the uttermost. Revelation 20, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God. And books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and hates delivered up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one according to his works. Then death and hates were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death, and anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. This is the end of sin. This is where sin leads, leads you to. It's the lake of fire. It's final eternal judgment by God against our sin. Death is no barrier, right? Physical death, right, doesn't prevent you from going on to the lake of fire. You will be resurrected in order to go to the lake of fire, right? There's really only one exception. And that is having your name written in the book of life. What is the book of life? The book of life is, records the names of those who put their trust in the Lord Jesus for their salvation, those who wash their robes in the blood of the Lamb, offered for everyone. Right? God, God uh, provided eternal life for everyone. Everyone can go to heaven. There is no barrier whatsoever. It's just a matter of accepting the gift of eternal life. It's accepting Jesus as your Lord and Savior now, Right? rather than resisting him to the very end. This is, if you would, door number A. Right? There's these game shows where they say, okay, do you want what's behind door number A or you want what's behind door number B? Well, this is what's behind door. Resisting God. Going your own way. Right? Denying him, his existence or his right to rule over you. That's where it leads to. Door number B is what, what uh, Jesus brings on in the next verse. Not to completely forget where we were, Matthew 24. Right? So it does say that all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory, and he will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet. And they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. This is door number B, right? When Jesus comes back to the earth, he will bring judgment to those who, in spite of every effort God made to bring them to himself, have continued to reject him, to resist him. The others are, are those who he calls in this passage the elect. Right, those who have been saved, 
those who cho chose to put their trust in the Lord Jesus as their Savior. And uh, he sends his angels up to gather them, and we see uh, what he's gathering them for. Revelation 20, uh, verse 4, it says, And I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection over such the second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. So we are going to be gathered by uh, the angels. Uh, now, to be most accurate, this would be tribulation saints that will be gathered together by the angel. But don't worry, because we'll be coming down with Jesus to the earth. So we'll be part of the, of the pack now. Right? So believers, when they die, they go to be with the Lord Jesus in heaven right now. And when he comes back down to the earth, we will be coming down with him into the earth because we will forever be with the Lord. And so we will partake in this thousand-year reign of, uh, of the earth. And God is not selfish. Uh, a lot of time we see uh, you know, politicians, you know, they want all the power to themselves. Right? which means less power to others. Right? Not so with God. He has all power, but he wants to share it with us. Right? That's why we will be reigning together with him. He, he will be giving, he's sharing his power with us so we can reign over the earth uh, together with him. It says in uh, 1 Corinthians that we will be judging angels. Right? I, it's difficult for us to wrap our minds. What will it be like to rule the universe together with God? But that's what it's talking about here. We will be reigning with him. And it says that we will be priests. To me, the fact that we will be priests speaks of our access to God, our nearness to God. The, the high priest was the one person who could come into the tabernacle and, and, and stand before God. In a limited way during the Old Testament time, there will be no barrier between us and God. And there is no barrier between us and God right now. Right? We have direct access to God through the Lord Jesus, but then we will see him face to face, right? We will have uh, an intimacy with him that we can't quite enjoy now, right? As much as we, we, we love him and draw near to him by faith, it will be by sight. Uh, just a couple of more passages about that as we're wrapping up the book of Revelation and this message. Uh, Revelation 21, Now I saw a new heaven, and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and will be their God. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, no sorrow, no crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Revelation 22, verse 3. And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb 
shall be in it, and his servant shall serve him. They shall see his face, and his name shall be on their foreheads. There shall be no night there. They need no lamp, nor light of the sun, for the Lord God gives them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. So this is door number B, right? We have door number A. Hold on to your sin. Continue your rebellion against God to the very end. It ends in the lake of fire. There's just nowhere else to go. Or door number B, submit to the Lord Jesus. He loves you. He died for you. He wants you forever in heaven with him. Rule over the universe together with him for eternity. Be a priest. Have access to God. See his face. Be with him. Enjoy fellowship with him for all of eternity. Right? Which hand has the marble? <laughs> right? This is God's desire for you. Finishing up. Revelation 22. And behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work. Jesus is saying that he is coming quickly. Right? And the Spirit and the bride say, Come, and let hear him who hears say, Come, and let him who thirsts come. Whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. God is inviting you. If you haven't yet taken the water of life, if you haven't yet come and taken Jesus into your heart as your Lord and your Savior, come today, we ask you, in his name. Lord Jesus, we... Delight to know that uh, you, you've called each and every one of us to yourself. You desire each and every one of us to enjoy uh, the water of life, our relationship with you that just grows nearer and nearer for all of eternity. We pray for anyone here who hasn't yet entered into the goodness of who you are, that you help them take that step today. For we ask it in your name. Amen.